0: Gresham College presents The Media and the Personal Data Privacy Wars by Dr. Robin Callender-Smith. My opening slide, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in fact, reflects the Gresham connection uh, that Valerie was uh, mentioning. Um, Sir John Gresham founded the school that I went to in North Norfolk uh, back in the mid-16th century. And um, he had... Sir Thomas Gresham, or Thomas Gresham as he was then, as an apprentice. Um, And Sir Thomas said that he learnt most of uh, what he needed to know from his uncle. Now His uncle, in fact, was um, a loan shark, in effect. Um, He would call himself a merchant adventurer. Uh, He uh, he did work for uh, Woolsey and Cromwell and um, had quite a lot to do uh, with valuing the various monasteries in uh, North Norfolk. Um, Fifty years after leaving Gresham's School, I find myself in his nephew's college, addressing you, and there is a degree of serendipity to that. Um, When I left Gresham's, um, I didn't go straight to university. I'd got uh, an English-speaking union scholarship, that took me over to America for a year, where I learnt, um, because they were just starting with their Freedom of Information statute, I learnt a little bit about Freedom of Information. And I decided when I came back that I didn't want to go straight into academic study. So I was an apprentice journalist uh, for four years uh, before actually starting any academic study. And it's probably what I learnt during that period uh, as a journalist uh, that has uh, indelibly coloured the rest of my academic life in uh, being interested in celebrities and what people don't necessarily want the public to know. I tend to fall on the media side rather than the complete privacy side. Um, A demonstration of that probably comes out of this next slide Um, the newspaper that I trained on the Eastern Daily Press um, was a a noble paper at the time it has gone downhill a bit since Uh, and um, part of my job as the most junior reporter at King's Lynn uh, was to watch uh, what was going on in terms of the royal comings and goings at Sandringham and there was one memorable um, uh, New Year's Eve, uh, when I was doorstepping outside the gates of Sandringham, as the sole journalist, everyone else had gone. It was snowing. Um, there were no mobile phones in those days. There was a telephone box half, about half a mile away. And at about nine o'clock, uh, I'd been waiting to see. Uh, there had been a background story about Prince Charles uh, driving. Um, a car or a Land Rover off the estate onto a public road and I was sort of waiting around to see whether there'd be anything like that happening and a car drew up next to me. In fact, it was Princess Margaret who proffered a flask of whiskey, uh, said, take a nip of this and I wouldn't wait around in the snow anymore uh, because no-one's going to come out. I'm the last person going in there. Um, So I trudged to the telephone box Uh, rang my sub-editors and asked to be excused, and fortunately uh, I was. But that was uh, my first introduction to the Sandringham estate, which is where this particular picture was taken. Um, There are public roads through the estate, and uh, back in November 2014, um, a long-lens photographer got this picture of Prince Edward uh, with his son, out shooting. The foreshortening distance makes it look as if the child's at risk. In fact, he isn't. Uh, And I do realise, and one or two of you may also have realised, that I should have pixelated um, the uh, young boy in that picture. The Palace complained about the picture, um, but never actually referred it to the Press Complaints Commission. And um, it was on the basis that there was really no expectation of privacy in terms of what Prince Edward did uh, on that bit of the estate. And that, if you like, is part of the uh, theme that runs through this. Um, I thought it'd be useful. The the transcript that you will get uh, is a fairly detailed text with all the references that you need uh, to follow things up in more detail. I read it, and I thought, well, that's very interesting, but actually it needs a slightly more rapid structure put around it. Um, And one of the things that is worth doing is explaining what I mean by celebrity, the taxonomy, if you like, of this particular topic. Uh, And I'm indebted to both William Shakespeare and my wife, Valerie, uh, for pointing out that there is actually a very easy taxonomy uh, in Malvolio's uh, speech in uh, Act Two of Twelfth Night, um, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Effectively, you've got royalty, you've got the senior political figures uh, who are in the second category achieving greatness, and then you've got the rather more evanescent X factor. Um, star for 15 minutes uh, who goes quickly across the firmament and is then forgotten. You can actually have celebrities who move through all three. Uh, Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, is an example of someone who started off as an ordinary person who was just, um, if you like, uh, Prince William's girlfriend. Uh, She then becomes engaged and now is part of, effectively, uh, someone who, if not born great... Uh, is living with someone who's born great, so they're, they're fairly close together. <laughs> the irony, of course, is that Malvolio thought this note uh, to him uh, was, uh, in fact, um, something that Olivia, Lady Olivia had written to him, uh, making a proposal of marriage that would make him great. And uh, the irony, of course, was that uh, he, he he was so completely wrong about that that the joke was on him. Again, looking at one of the core elements, um, privacy. Um, There are all kinds of definitions of privacy, and I thought it would be useful just to explain what it is to me in terms of this talk to you this evening. Um, Something is private. If someone wants it uh, to be private in relation to what they do, and when someone wishes to be free from outside access when attending or undertaking something. And that, effectively, is seclusional privacy. Informational privacy, which is closer to what we're uh, going to look at this evening, uh, relates to information that is private, that the individual doesn't want people to know about. And finally... There's a key concept that runs behind all of this in terms of how uh, the law uh, deals with arguments about privacy. And that is uh, the concept of proportionality, best expressed by Lord Steen uh, in this case uh, from 2004, which sets out a stepped process for achieving, at least mentally, Um, the judicial process of working out where the proportionality balance falls. Firstly, uh, neither Article 8, which is the uh, private life, nor Article 10, uh, which is the uh, freedom of speech element uh, to the Human Rights Act, has such precedence over the other. In other words, they're equally balanced. That's despite the fact that within the Human Rights Act, at um, Section 12.4, there appears to be uh, a slight overbalancing of freedom of speech uh, in terms of what is stated within the Human Rights Act. It's difficult to see in the case law, uh, but it's certainly something that was inserted over and above the Basic Convention. Where the values within the two articles are in conflict, it's a question of putting a cold towel over your head and focusing on the comparative importance of the rights being claimed in the individual cases or the individual case. Then looking at the justifications for balancing one or the other. And finally, applying uh, this ultimate balancing test where you marry the Article 10 side of the balance with the Article 8 side of the balance and see whether, in fact, there's an imbalance And at that stage, uh, you make your proportionate decision. Uh, In reality, as you will all realise, this is a great formula to cover um, results. It shows that there has been judicial thinking behind whatever the result is. But if we all did individual proportionality exercises on any particular example, we'd probably all arrive at slightly different results. What it does allow is for those looking in from the outside to see the working of the judicial reasoning. The Streisand effect. Um, Can I just check? Uh, Hands up, all of you who've heard of the Streisand effect. There's a smattering of knowledge out there. Um, (coughs) Barbara Streisand bought this rather magnificent property on the Malibu coast back in, I think it was early 2000. And the California Coastal Research Archive was doing a series of photographs down the uh, California coast. It was really a geological survey. And um, image number... 3850 in the archive was this. And um, Barbara just decided that she did not wish people to be able to see this within the archive. So she started litigation to try and prevent its publication. She wanted it taken from the archive. The more she litigated, the more people wanted to know what it was she was litigating about, <clears throat> So, as she tried to create greater privacy, she, in fact, attracted much more attention. Um, The statistics are quite interesting. There had been six downloads of this picture uh, before the litigation started. The next two downloads came from her lawyers. And then, in the first month of the litigation there were 420,000 downloads. So the more you try to hide something, if you're a celebrity, the more you are likely to attract interest in it. And um, in this internet age, uh, particularly with ubiquitous images um, being made available and it being very difficult to de-link them, which is a topic we're going to come on to, um, the Streisand effect uh, demonstrates the paradox, really, uh, within this whole area. Don't fall asleep for the next three slides. I know data protection does not sound very interesting, but think of it as data privacy. Um, The act gives the impression that it's got something to do with the security of personal data. Actually, it's got much more to do with the integrity and privacy that go behind that data and what is proportionate in terms of how personal data can be used. So, I I would encourage you, when you think of this topic, to think data privacy, not data protection. And... The Act is particularly dense uh, in terms of its drafting. It's lifted from a European directive. Uh, It is very worthy, um, but it does have a habit of sending people to sleep very quickly. So hopefully I can get through the next two slides without hearing too much snoring, Um, but I've reduced uh, what it's all about and perhaps oversimplified it but I wanted it to be accessible to you in terms of three slides setting out what it's all about. Um, Personal data, which is at the core of what the Act's all about, is any data relating to an identified or identifiable living individual. And it applies to data held on computers or in a relevant filing system. And you can take it that all of your mobile phones... Uh, Are computers, something that actually becomes very important when you throw this topic into the phone hacking area, because that's where where the Data Protection Act uh, bites. Um, It creates rights for people who have their data stored and responsibilities for the people who store the data, who process it and transmit it. And a person who's had their data processed has the right to see it, correct it, and restrict any damaging or distressing uses. So there are ways of controlling what happens to your data, but you need to know what is happening. Um, There are Data Protection Act principles. And the key one, and it's the one that lies at the heart of the phone hacking scandal uh, is that personal data has to be processed fairly and lawfully and cannot be processed unless it's basically used for a lawful purpose and the data itself has to be adequate, relevant and not excessive and it has to be accurate and kept no longer than necessary There are other principles, but those are the key ones, and it gives you a flavour of what the law seeks to do. At the other end of the Act, after all the principles, uh, you've got this very important Section 32, which basically disapplies the Act in terms of journalistic data processing. And that has really quite a profound effect because within uh, the way we brought the Act into law in this country, we allowed the uh, editors of um, the the media, whether it's televisual or print, to be the arbiters themselves about whether they were processing material in the public interest. Now, this is normally an area where certainly if celebrities are seeking injunctions, um, they will be saying uh, something is about to be misused and it's the court who decides that on principles of proportionality. But in terms of data protection, it's actually an editorial function. And within Section 32, there is an inbuilt Um, block on injunctive proceedings Uh, the only way you can really get a reference uh, for external observation of what's going on with the media processing uh, personal data is by complaining to the information commissioner who then has to do an immediate investigation Uh, you will understand the practicalities of news production and if you are someone who feels that your data is being misused and you complain to the information commissioner you won't be able to have the investigation done before the cat's out of the bag it's as simple as that and we'll be looking at certainly one case uh, where um, an extremely wealthy um, billionaire uh, tried to get the data protection act to work on those grounds. So it disapplies the Data Protection Act principles if the data controller, the editor, reasonably believes that the processing and publication would be in the public interest. So this is what lies at the core of this bit of the law. Now, um, in terms of celebrities trying to protect their privacy, I should give you a slightly broader context than the Data Protection Act. There is breach. There are a number of strands of law that may protect. There is breach of confidence. The, coming out of breach of confidence, uh, as we will see, there is misuse of private information. Uh, and there's data protection. And in any claim against publishers... These three elements are normally rolled together. So you plead all three. You may even plead um, protection from harassment, which is another uh, potentially civil and criminal remedy that can be used. So you can have a number of strands within um, an attempt to protect privacy through the legal process, and sometimes uh, one will prevail. I say this because the real problem with the Data Protection Act almost since its inception, uh, in, uh, it, it was um, approved in uh, 1998 and came into force in October 2000. Um, it contained uh, an important, slightly deficient section, Section 13, in relation to damages. And because of the way Section 13 was drafted, the damages uh, meant that an individual had to show, to get damages, had to show not only that they were distressed by the misuse of personal data, but they'd suffered pecuniary, pecuniary loss. So you had to show that you had actually lost some money as a result of this. Because data protection was often... Uh, the poor relative of rather more spectacular allegations of breach of confidence or misuse of private info- of, of personal information, then when the, when the judges, uh, when the court got to quantification of data protection damages, they were coming in really at a derisory level. Data protection was very much the poor relative of uh, the if you like, the the weapons in a celebrity's armoury. This is first evident in... uh, I'm I'm sorry about the quality of some of these photographs. If you're scraping stuff off the web, uh, you do get some rather grainy results. Um, Barbara Streisand's uh, house was fairly spectacularly clear. Uh, This is the, the wedding photograph for the um, marriage of Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones with, I think, sitting bottom uh, left, bottom left, yes, um, Kirk Douglas. And um, for those of you who don't know or need reminding, uh, the Douglases, as they became, um, had a wedding that was um, bought up by Richard Desmond's OK magazine, and Hello, the rival, um, managed to get someone into the wedding with a mobile phone that took pictures, and they were able to get one or two pictures, uh, as it were, sent out during the course of the wedding, to Hello, who had a production um, cycle ready to do what in in newspaper terms is called a spoiler, and um, broke their own story before OK's exclusive photo spread on this wedding. And this led to serial litigation. Uh, there are about, I think there are about eight iterations of the hello litigation. It went up and down through various courts. Um, but what's important for you to note is uh, the case was really about breach of confidence. Um, a breach of commercial confidence. In other words, all the wedding guests are supposed to have agreed not to do what this particular hallow mole managed to do to spoil the story. Uh, But um, at the end of the pleadings, they tacked on a data protection claim. Our personal data has been unfairly and unlawfully misused because we had not authorised the person uh, who took the picture or the publication uh, to do this. And after a lot of humming and hawing, they got £50 data protection damages. That's not really what stars get out of bed for. Um, You might be forgiven for leaving it off your statement of claim. Um, It gets a little bit more um, interesting... In the Naomi Campbell case, Um, Naomi Campbell uh, was photographed um, by a uh, mirror freelance coming out of Narcotics Anonymous, uh, a Narcotics Anonymous meeting uh, in West London. And um, the action that followed uh, was a breach of confidence action and uh, what became a misuse of private information. In the House of Lords, Baroness Hale decided that because she had effectively been stalked to get the picture in question, that was a misuse of her private information. The Mirror could have got away with this story if it had not used the picture. It was the picture that made it particularly toxic you can have the picture editorially in your back pocket and say, if you deny this story, here is the picture. But that's very different from going full-on with the picture. And it was the picture that actually, um, if you like, destroyed the mirror's case. But even then, there were only £50 data protection damages. Uh, And um, Anthony White, who is the centre figure wearing the wig in that case, did the data protection argument and uh, he tells the story against himself but when when he stood up to do the data protection argument on her behalf um, all the counsel around him uh, said, right, in very loud voices, right, Anthony is now going to ball for Britain Uh, and and the judge noted that too. Um, But Uh, you may be able to see the top bit of the text, widespread publication of a photograph of someone which reveals, let's call it it her rather than him, reveals her to be in a situation of humiliation or severe embarrassment, even if taken in a public place, may be an infringement of privacy of this personal information. And that actually moved the law out of a rut that it had gone into uh, with breach of confidence and sprung it into a new area. So we now have, uh, and that's the first real starting point of misuse of private information as a brand new tort. Uh, Now, that's not so long ago, but it still took a little bit of time for the principle of misuse of private information with, if you like, the data protection bits attached to it, uh, to bite. And it really bit in Max Mosley's case. Um, It is worth reading this case if you don't already know it. Um, It's worth reading it because uh, the News of the World lost the case because they couldn't be bothered to pay the taxi fare of one of the working girls who had in fact photographed the alleged um, Nazi-themed, sadomasochistic um, events. The court was quite clear that someone indulging in private sexual activity had a reasonable expectation of privacy. And um, the news of the world had overblown, as you'll see from one of the later slides the allegation, it said that the whole thing was Nazi-themed. That was never proved, largely because of the absence of the witness. They couldn't be bothered to pay to get into a taxi. Um, And Max Mosley was able to recover, for the misuse of that uh, private information, he recovered £60,000. Now, given that that case is in 2008 you can see a bit of a scaling up in terms of what has happened to damages in this area. Uh, What I didn't put on the Campbell slide was that she recovered in the end about 3,500. And actually valuing how privacy is damaged is very, very difficult, uh, as we're going to see. But the legacy... Of the Mosley case isn't just in crystallising the new tort of misuse of private information. It's very much what then happened to the linking to the video that purported to show this Nazi themed orgy. The News of the World made that available online and it remained online for an awful long time it got taken down in various jurisdictions and popped up again and uh, as we'll see in one of the later cases it's that linking to uh, information that is not accurate and not proportionate in terms of keeping uh, that has created really a new field of privacy law this is taken from the middle paragraph of a letter that I read last week. Um, and uh, when I did the original slide, it was actually cursive script. It, it, it's it's going to bust itself into ordinary, um, ordinary text. But uh, essentially, um, this is a warning that um, a celebrity wants this particular newspaper to stop processing or processing for a specified purpose, any personal data concerning the celebrity and his personal relationships, on the ground that the processing may cause substantial damage or substantial distress to him. This is a typical lawyer's letter. The core of it is having given notice under Section 10 of the Data Protection Act, um, this particular client reserves the right to apply under Section 10.4. That is to complain to the Information Commissioner that his personal data or her personal data is being misused. So this is now becoming almost a standard form clause in not so much letters before action, but uh, the preliminary shots uh, that are fired uh, at media lawyers uh, from one side of the trench to the other. In 2014, uh, we had what I will term the data protection trio of cases. Um, You'll see from the slides that follow uh, that actually in 2015, uh, we then have the um, privacy quartet, but this is the data protection trio to start off with. Uh, Benny Steinmetz is a wealthy um, Israeli billionaire um, with mining interests Uh, Global Witness is uh, an NGO that um, looks carefully at what mining companies do. There's Google Spain and uh, Mr. Gonzalez. Uh, This is all about the right to be forgotten and linking. And then uh, Mr. Heglin uh, and Google. And I'll explain each of them. Um, Mr. Steinmetz uh, had a mining operation in uh, West Africa or Central Africa. And Global Witness was extremely unimpressed with the way he was operating uh, his workforce and came out with a number of blogs uh, which were very critical. He took legal advice and he decided to use the Data Protection Act to uh, essentially tell Global Witness to stop processing personal information about him and demanding, demanding to see what it had on him in terms of their processing and the right to correct it if it was inaccurate. This is equivalent, in effect, to using the Data Protection Act uh, as a defamation um, vehicle without any defence built in to the normal defamation. And he complained... Uh, to the information commissioner what's interesting is that global witness said we're an NGO and what we do in blogging is very similar to journalistic activity so we're entitled to the section 32 defense that I mentioned earlier and we have that protection we're doing something that is journalism art or literature it doesn't need to be in conventional newspapers or on conventional television. It can be in our blog. The matter went off to the Information Commissioner, who said, quite right. Now, I don't know whether the litigation has stopped, but it was the first element of uh, someone gripping the Data Protection Act and using it aggressively to try and protect their privacy as as a celebrity. (laughs) you've probably all heard about this case, Um, Mr. Gonzalez and the uh, right to be forgotten. I think it's a so-called right to be forgotten. Um, The thing is that the background facts showed that the information that he kept getting linked to was old and the debt that it referred to had been satisfied a long time ago. So it was not proportionate to allow the internet linking to the newspaper that had the information. It wasn't that the newspaper had to lose the information, it was that Google had to stop linking to it. And that went before the uh, European Court of Justice in, um, in Luxembourg. And there is a significance because... We, uh, under the uh, Lisbon Treaty, are part of, the uh, uh, part of the Charter of Fundamental Rights that governs this area. And decisions that come out of Luxembourg are not like Strasbourg decisions. Uh, they actually are binding on all 28 EU member states. So what uh, Luxembourg decided in this case, coming out of Spain binds all the EU states. And this was picked up by Mr Heglin, uh, who was facing um, links to very unsavoury uh, material um, that was being posted about him and his sexual preferences, or alleged sexual preferences, um, by uh, someone with an axe to grind against him. He was a, a former... Uh, merchant banker in the City of London who had moved to Hong Kong, uh, a high-profile individual. The linking was completely unwarranted, uh, and he said to Google, will you stop doing this linking? And they said, yeah, it's terribly complicated. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. But then uh, they thought about this and decided they'd better do it. And uh, the litigation in respect of Mr. Heglin, just suddenly stopped. Um, Google had put in uh, an estimated costs bill for fighting the action of uh, 1.8 million, which uh, slightly surprised the, um, uh, the judge dealing with the case management thing. So Google were trying to use their strength to out-litigate someone who was very wealthy, uh, but on the back of the um, Gonzales decision, uh, they decided they couldn't fight any more Then we get the Privacy Quartet. Um, Vidal Hall, Mr Mosley again, and two very interesting cases, Weller and Gulati. Judith Vidal Hall, who's the... um, I think with her son or her grandson in in that picture, um, she and three other test claimants had been using uh, the Safari browser... uh, on their Apple Macs. And what they didn't know was that there was an embedded cookie uh, that monitored exactly what they were doing and could target uh, advertising towards them. In other words, there was quite a severe surveillance breach of their privacy. And they took action in this country. The first big win came when uh, the High Court decided that Google could be bought into uh, the jurisdiction for this um, particular uh, litigation. Google said, oh, it's all about misuse of private information. That's not a tort. Uh, And the court said, rubbish, it is. And the Court of Appeal affirmed that bit. Um, The second bit, as you will see uh, on one of the later slides, is that um, it also decided that the whole concept of section 13 damages within the Data Protection Act uh, was flawed. There had been a bad transposition from the um, European directive uh, in relation to data protection and uh, the idea that you could only get damages if you could show pecuniary loss uh, was disapproved at first instance and Uh, that attitude was affirmed by the Court of Appeal. And it's that bit that is going uh, to the Supreme Court, the issue of Section 13 damages, because what the Court did, and the Court of Appeal agreed, was effectively use the editorial pencil uh, on Section um, 13-2, which had been validly passed by Parliament. It actually just struck it out and said, this is not valid law despite the fact it had been through the parliamentary process. Um, Mr Mosley in Google, Mr Mosley got really fed up with the perpetual linking to this original um, News of the World story uh, on one side. And you can see from the graph, I hope you can see from the graph anyway, um, mm-hmm. that uh, where it says the unforgiving internet, that shows you uh, the peaking of downloading uh, this particular uh, video uh, over the period between 2008 and 2009. And again, that is one where, having issued his claim, Google settled very largely off the back of the Gonzalez case. There was no proportionate or lawful way that there should be linking through to this video. And Paul Weller and Associated Newspapers. Some of you in the audience will remember, I hope, Style Council. Um, Paul Weller and his family were in California. Uh, he was with his new second wife and daughter from his first marriage. His daughter is called Dylan, and the ha- they had twins. John Paul and Bowie, uh, who were 10 months old. And they were being followed by a paparazzi photographer who took pictures of them out and about shopping and sent them to the news of, uh, sorry, sent them to Associated Newspapers who used the pictures of the children with their parents. And he took action on the basis that the pictures had been taken unlawfully because he was being harassed. And they were sensitive personal um, data in relation to the children. And he won. The 10-year-old Dylan got £10,000 and the two 10-month-old twins got £5,000 each. Um, And it sort of set a hair running in terms of the protection of images of children. What the Court of Appeal failed to do, and it had a chance but it just missed it, was to define uh, what a child is. Because that, from my point of view, would be very useful. Is it a criminal type definition or is it a a more general definition? They just ducked the issue completely. It was never argued before them. Um, But again, that steps into an area of protecting the sensitive personal Data of children. There had been an earlier case involving J.K. Rowling's son David, uh, and this affirmed it. And then we have this um, again, it's a case uh, I've referenced it in the background material. It is well worth reading if you've got about a week to do it, because Ms. Justice Mann's um, decision uh, runs to about 450 paragraphs, and it's meticulous. Um, He wrote the decision uh, after hearing 15 days of evidence, and it's evidence about how the Mirror misused unlawfully obtained information. And these representative um, celebrities took action against Mirror Group. Um, Some of them um, I knew... Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know who Lucy Taggart was. She is second, second left at the top. Um, I didn't know who Robert Ashworth was. He's wearing the leather jacket. He's a television producer. You probably recognise Paul Gascoigne. I've tried to use a moderately um, flattering picture of him. He doesn't always appear that way. And uh, Sadie Frost is bottom left. Now, look at what they got. This is because their information, their personal information, was misused unlawfully. Um, Of those eight representative claimants, um, they wanted what is in the centre column and they got what is in the right-hand column. But got means for Sadie Frost, over a quarter of a million. Um, And it means for Robert Ashworth, over £200,000. Now, this is in a completely different um, universe from the £50 that we'd been looking at when I started these slides. It's not a Data Protection Act decision, but the principles within it apply equally now to data protection damages where you don't have necessarily to show pecuniary loss. We're on that sort of cusp of the world changing completely in terms of damages. And taking us into this year, because when I agreed with Valerie that I would do this lecture, I wasn't quite sure how, at uh, the last two cases, Gulati and uh, Weller were going to break, but they broke the way I felt they would. Uh, We've got um, items heading towards the Supreme Court, uh, and we've got the very, very um, imminent uh, data protection regulation coming into force. Uh, Google and Vidal Hall is going to the Supreme Court probably uh, in um, early autumn, Of this year on the data protection section 13 point and the editing. And that will be a fascinating decision. The next two cases, Weller and Gulati, um, the newspapers have asked for permission to appeal. And on the last check that I had, the Supreme Court hadn't actually given permission to either. But it's quite likely. That in both cases um, they will be before the Supreme Court. And then we've got the EU, the long awaited EU data protection uh, regulation. Now, to remind you, the difference between a European directive and a European regulation is when you incorporate domestically a directive, you've got a degree of flexibility, sort of. When you incorporate a regulation, you've actually got to do a letter-by-letter transposition. There is much less wiggle room. And one of the stings to the new regulation uh, that would have been felt by the Murdoch Empire if it had been in force, say, five years ago, is that there may be um, up to 4% of worldwide turnover as a potential fine. Now, that's eye-wateringly different from any regime that exists at the moment. I've made the closing comments. It's over to you for questions. For all further information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.